0: AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com.
1: Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for October 18th, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we're joined by John there online. Welcome, John.
2: Thank you, Brian. All
1: right, and we have uh, Matt Kaiser here. Glad to be back. Yeah, glad to have you back. And uh, John Hogevam, welcome, John. Thank you uh, for having me. All right, and I hope everybody's having a happy and productive Cybersecurity Awareness Month.
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> you feel more aware I about cybersecurity
3: from doing some analysis. Yeah, so right like off I... the hot, hot off the presses. <laughs> Although I've got nothing
1: I can actually tell you. All right, we are doing good. some cybersecurity. We stuff. do have some things that you're going to talk about a little yes. bit later. on, Yeah, yeah, we and, do. And yeah. uh, I think some interesting ones, nevertheless. Uh, Yeah, it's yeah. All right, good. I'm Brian Rexroad, and let's uh, go ahead and uh, get right into it. And Matt, we're going to go with you first, and first you have to explain a little bit about the gaming currency with me, and then explain how this is going to, you know, what what, what's really happening here and what that means.
0: Sure. So this is an article, uh, actually a good white paper by Trend Micro, the cyber criminal roots of selling online gaming currency. Mm. That's a mouthful. Let's unpack that. So. Online gaming currency is, if you've got games with a large number of players, things like your World of Warcraft, League of Legends, things where within the game you can earn money in various ways, either mm-hmm. by defeating enemies or completing quests or things like that, you get this in-game currency. You can use it to buy things within the game's markets. You can buy items and upgrades and mm-hmm. you know funny hats for your character, all these things are things you can buy. Mm-hmm. There's small microcosm. Um, economies,
1: basically. But, it, but it's right inside the virtual world. Correct. So you can make up money, it doesn't really have to exist well, because the, you're- Within the rules of the game, yeah, there are right. ways to get money. It's not like okay. you could just create it out of,
0: because that would that would be no fun. Mm-hmm. It's, it's part of the whole idea of you work hard in the game, you get mm-hmm. compensated with game money, you can use it to buy the things you want to play the game, mm-hmm. and it keeps you playing the game.
3: And in some games, you can actually use real money to buy in-game That's currency. That's where we're going with it. Okay. That's yeah.
0: exactly where we're going. So real money trading, or RMT is the phrase that they use in the article, and some people believe that real money trading, spending real-world money to buy in-game currency is a way of cheating, or at least it's sort of against the spirit of the game. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you were playing baseball with your friends and you decided that you were going to spend 50... you know, spend a large amount of money and get Ken Griffey Jr. on your team, Mm -hmm. it's like, what the heck? We're we're here playing at our own level and Mm -hmm. you're gonna come in with your money you've got somewhere else and spoil the game because it's no longer fun, we're no longer on the same playing field. Mm -hmm. So some people feel that way about it. Others would Mm -hmm. gladly pay the money because they play maybe two hours a week and they can't dedicate the amount of time to grind and earn what they want to be able to do. Like if they want to get this particular item in the game, but they physically, you know, they've got a, a job, they've got other responsibilities, mm-hmm. they're willing to pay the money it's to get that life. advantage.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> welcome to capitalism. No, I
0: know, they, they, do, they do say something to that effectiveness. <laughs> that they, they have other things, you know, a life. Yeah. So the uh, majority of real, mo- real money trading occurs in PC games, yeah. uh, things like World of Warcraft and League of Legends. There's actually a small market around Pokemon Go, but for the most part, it seems to be PC gaming and selling in-game currency is not illegal, it's just against the terms and conditions of many of these games, Mm because they've recognized that when this occurs, people are somewhat disappointed that you can go in and spend money and get an Mm -hmm. advantage, because you haven't been working that hard. Mm -hmm. Um, But they're willing to sell
1: cheats. Yes.
0: So, (laughs) moving on. Um, (laughs) But game currencies aren't regulated like real ones, and there's no real repercussions for selling game currency, because what will happen mm. is your account might get banned, mm-hmm. but nothing prevents you from creating a brand new one and starting it all over again. So that's sort of the attraction for some people for you know, farming this in-world currency and then converting it into real-world money for mm-hmm. the folks who want to buy it. And there's all sorts of ways to do that. Some of them are involving um, paying money to what's called farm gold, which is to sit and do repetitive tasks within the game over and mm-hmm. over. And in fact, there was at least one case where there was a sweatshop where they found folks who were sitting there and mining or farming for gold in this game and that was being used to finance you know this whole operation and then it was being it was somehow related to organized crime i believe
1: that would be a great i think a more significant motivation for making it against the terms of the game use so that you have a basis to be able to boot things out when they're when they're basically abusing the game for mining that's true Yeah, that's very true that makes Um,
0: sense other ways of doing are finding glitches in the games things Mm -hmm. like you're allowed to duplicate items and you can take those items and sell them and turn that money. Mm -hmm. You can write your own bots for certain games, which allows you to cheat, you know, automatically do those same sorts of repetitive tasks Mm and earn money and then sell that. Uh, And sometimes they go so far as to trick people into installing rats on their machines. And that has a secondary market. Obviously you can steal the credentials for the user and then whatever they've got, dump the account and sell it. And then, you know, who cares? But when you're on that person's machine, there's all sorts of other cybercrime you could also be doing. Mm
1: they it, it, doesn't, it doesn't
0: look pretty. No, it doesn't look pretty. <laughs> um, and in that case, it's part of a larger criminal yeah. operation typically, uh, sort of that long tail, I've got a 1,000 accounts to something, someone's probably going to be willing to pay money for it. Mm-hmm. Um, they go on to talk about advertising, both on the service and dark web, uh, the different types of, of things that are being sold from the currency, which is probably the easiest and the one that's easiest to make look legitimate, mm-hmm. uh, to selling stolen accounts, which is typically on the dark web and is not at all legitimate and very much against, um, not only the terms of service, but potentially against the law as well because mm-hmm. you've stolen somebody's uh, online identity. And then they talk about transferring payments into cryptocurrency and using that cryptocurrency to finance other things. It's, it's by the end of the paper, it's, it's getting towards I can see people doing this to make money um, The converting into cryptocurrency is not so much of a stretch, but then there's other things they talk about as a gateway into further online crime and, mm-hmm. and other sorts of things like that. And I feel like that's where I wish I had they had more, more evidence to back it up and maybe they can't do it for you know law enforcement purposes. But that's the part I was really sort of like, so where are these definite ties between hardened cyber criminals and folks who are stealing online Mm -hmm. gaming accounts, so.
1: Well, and and it may be one of these blurry lines, you know, the the argument that, you know, using one drug leads to using another drug. Mm -hmm. You can't really prove that that's the case. You could try to gather some statistics, but it's not necessarily, it could be just Nature of someone's personality, as opposed to, mm-hmm. you know, the actual effects of a drug or something like that. That's true. I think you'd have uh, similar kinds of challenges in trying to do that sort of analysis in this situation. But this is interesting; it's a really tangled web. And I think I think one of the things that um, we we kind of need to recognize as a society is this blurring between the virtual worlds that are becoming more and more real-like, mm-hmm. less distinguishable from the real world, and what. As John was referring to earlier, (laughs) just the, you know, life, actually having a real life. And, you know, I think this is a case where if you can effectively earn currency in one place and translate it to currency in the real world, it's blurring that line. And, uh, you know, I think of the Matrix movie where, you know, that they started to blur the line between the virtual world or the pretend world, the manufactured world and the actual world that they were living in Mm -hmm. and latter you know, part versions of the movie, at, uh, it, it's sort of the same kind of thing that we're running into here in a very different sense, but mm-hmm. nevertheless, it's uh, it's becoming more of a challenge. As we start getting into more virtual reality visualization, it's going to become more difficult to recognize what world you're in at a particular time. And you know, I, I think the uh, an earlier um, exposure to this activity is that uh, we saw, you know, people taking gaming and then extending the game out into conducting denial of service attacks against their opponents. They do mention that, yeah. And uh, that, I think that was sort of the Fourier into this blending or the, you know, the blurring of uh, the, you know, which, which world you're in. If the game extends out into the real world, world how do you, when do you start losing a distinction between the two? Younger it, folks might not really make the distinction. And
0: I think that's that's part of what they were saying, is that mm-hmm. younger folks who have who want to get that advantage and play the game, they may be willing to pay the money regardless of how this mm-hmm. money was obtained. And you probably would never find out that these things were stolen from other accounts or mm-hmm. farmed, you know, exploiting workers in some other country. You'd never find that out. But then you've got the young players who are so into the game that they're willing to do certain things to get that advantage. Mm-hmm. And they, they may make that transition to going ahead and running their own DDoS attacks against a, a competitor or the stepping stone from there to running their own DDoS service, mm-hmm. I can kind of see that connection. Uh, maybe yeah. maybe that's something that you can teach people though. Maybe you can teach them that as much as you're into this game, as, as exciting and important as it is to you right now, in the grand scheme of things, it's not worth taking the measures that you're doing. You know, maybe mm-hmm. your friends are, are beating you with this and maybe you're really tempted to, to take those first few steps, mm-hmm. but... Um,
1: well, that's a very good point. You know, the uh, I, this is a very interesting story because I think it is important that we recognize you know, how this is influencing our social behaviors, where things could go bad. And I think it's really important that good guidance is provided to young folks, actually perhaps even older folks, to make sure that they're really recognizing the distinction of what is good or bad behavior or an acceptable behavior in these kinds of spaces. I think a lot of the denial of service attacks that are conducted are conducted by kids, maybe they know it's not so bad, but they probably don't realize it's illegal or has other ramifications that are well, or that it might have doing. other yeah. impacts
3: to yeah. other, you know, collateral damage to other right. people. You're not just mm-hmm. taking out your your buddy on Xbox shared routers or, and whatnot, mm-hmm. or other infrastructure that right.
1: choke so points in the network. Mm-hmm. So that that whole story has a, I think, a lot of angles that could be pursued in the future. So we should keep an eye out for t- topics like that. I think it's very interesting. So John Markley, let's go to you, and um, I think. Uh, well, I guess you'd like to advise us a little bit on make, paying attention to our permissions here, and um, I give you permission to speak about it. <laughs> Thank
2: you, Brian. <laughs> no, the, you, you, the, you know, a lot of these threat track sessions that I've been on or, and I've watched myself, it, you know, when i have not been on, it, are, are discussing things like you know when we load apps, we install software, we need to make sure we know what kind of permissions they have. You know, mm-hmm. we need to understand uh, what you know, what's actually going on when I load this, you know, new game? You know, what does it need? Um, so so the other day I was uh, sort of read an article about a, a product that tested security, actually, on my de- on a device. And I thought, well, I'll load this and see, you know, see how it goes. It was actually a company device, so it's not like my personal information could be compromised. It was a legitimate company. Loaded it up. And, and this, is, again, this is a piece of software that's kind of like an antivirus type software. And it started asking me all these, you know, it says, here's all the stuff that it needs permissions to. Mm-hmm. You know, it needed to make in-app purchases. It needed to do, and this is, this is on newer versions of Android in particular. The example here is it needed device and app history. It needed my identity. It needed my, all my contact list. It needed my location. It needed to be able to send and receive text messages. It needed, you know, and some of these things you can understand. Because it's the intent of the program is to scan like an AV to scan the pro you know scan a device for 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 malicious code or malicious other things that are on the device mm-hmm. and and it just it it was kind of just very confusing to me that it needed all these permissions right up front mm-hmm. you know it didn't say okay you installed this now hey I need to check your photos can I get access to your photos all up front I need everything. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's just a, a great, you know, a great thing to be aware of, especially, like I said, in the Android world, to know what it's asking for, what you're giving it, and, and then if you're smart enough, after you've installed it, some of the newer versions of Android, I think they're going to improve this, is you can actually take that permission away.
0: Hmm.
2: But but in older versions of Android, especially in the the four, you know, four dot KitKat, uh, maybe in some of the Lollipops, you know, and, and even early versions of Marshmallow, the, the, the six versions. You don't get a lot of control. I mean, the app asks for permissions, you give it, and it just keeps it up, you know, forever. Mm. Okay.
1: Yeah, that's a, I, I, I'm I personally not an Android user, but the uh, uh, generally what I tend to do in cases like this when an app is asking for permissions, I just deny it. And then uh, if it really needs it, what I end up with is a pop-up, and I can, at least in that situation, understand the context about whether it's worth it to me to grant the permission or not. And uh, oftentimes it's not. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, this is an interesting observation here, John, particularly since it is a security application. Um, you know, John Hogeboom, you've talked with us about be- before about the hazards of security applications, in fact, because they do require higher permissions yeah. than pretty much anything else. If you have a vulnerability in a security application, it really puts the entire machine at risk. When in that context, we were talking about PCs or, right, you know, right. yeah, uh, Windows platforms or Linux platforms, yeah. perhaps. Uh, but uh, the same appears to be somewhat true if, if this is, in fact, a, a set of legitimate I request. mean, I can
3: kind of understand why this particular app would be asking for this yeah. level of permissions because in order to know whether, probably, in order to know whether it, your device is secure or not, it needs to be able to evaluate mm-hmm. um, by accessing all these. But still, yeah, absolutely. it's a little worrisome if you don't know or trust the vendor.
1: Yeah. It, you know, I think uh, having access to the data may provide some insight
2: into what applications access the data. Is that a possibility? Maybe. I don't
3: really know enough about Android and
1: the sandboxing that occurs there. Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, and, and the concern is things like location, you know, even an antivirus, why does it need to know where I'm physically at?
1: Well, and I think what I was, I, and I'm conjecturing here. We, in fact, it, perhaps we can consult with somebody that's uh, well versed in Android app development. But my impression is that perhaps it's not the location itself they're looking for. It's knowledge of other applications that have location access to location data. And if they could see that, it could help to identify rogue apps that perhaps are ones of, you don't want of like to have there. Hooking functions yeah
0: where you have the the shim inside right. so you know anytime anybody wants to request yeah. to be yeah. one of these and and and
2: that's true the, yeah. that's true but the the challenge is is that because you're giving it these permissions mm-hmm. it, it can do all that i mean it can look at other apps, but it can also do it itself if it wanted to yep yep
1: so all right well, very good observation here, John. I appreciate you bringing that to the table mm-hmm. and i think um i and i mean this, I mean, is, this is sort, the, sort of the other, obvious example sorry but, one other yeah. thing
3: which we talked about with like p c antivirus is because it runs at elevated privilege, um, if there is a compromise or an exploit available, that would be very troubling because mm-hmm. it's able to, you know, get root access probably relative to a yeah. Windows device. Same same thing here, you know. So you really have to know whether or not this app is going to not have any exploits mm-hmm. uh, pass. Because if there is some, you know, vulnerability there, it's basically opening up your whole device. Mm-hmm. Anyway, sorry.
1: So, I think uh, you're, you're leading toward, I think, a significant point here. We've talked many times about there's no free lunch. And, uh, you know, if you were to download a free security scanner application and it wants all this information, you know, then you start to lose track perhaps about how they really are making money or what their real true objectives are. So, something to keep in mind, and I think this is kind of an obvious example because it's asking for a ridiculous amount of capabilities. It, this, uh, you know, In the more subtle cases, perhaps, <laughs> applications are asking for permission to things that uh, seem a little more innocuous, but you don't really know what's going on b- behind the scenes unless you really dig into the fine print and check on the reviews and things like that. So thanks for bringing that, John. That's a, that's a good story. So, John Huggabum, will go over to you. And mm-hmm. uh, we've been talking about the IoT challenges uh, a lot, we've talking for years about this, right. closed-circuit TV cameras. That have been we you know we called them security surveillance camera DVRs for a long period of time. We sort of uh, have migrated to CCTV because in most cases they are in fact wired cameras to a right, you know right. a DVR that connects to the network. But um, I think uh, I, and I think you've even talked about before some of the brands that were behind this and how they sort of tied back to a common company. So. I think I've stolen enough of your thunder. No, that's
3: okay. (laughs) I mean, uh, there's plenty of thunder to go around. (laughs) So, like you said, we have been talking about this for a long time. Um, I would say, and even last week, I kind of gave a nice kind of chart on the 23-TCP scanning, which is all kind of related to this activity of these IoT devices that are trying to scan and find more devices that Mm -hmm. they can compromise. And in the middle of the summer probably of 2016, it really started to escalate. So we went from, you know, baseline of maybe 150,000 scan sources up to 450,000 now, which is pretty significant. Mm -hmm. Um, That's, and for us to see 450,000, it's probably some order of magnitude greater than that in reality, right? Because we don't necessarily see
1: Well, yeah, it peaked out at like 450,000 in a given hour. Right, in a given hour. And then through the course of the day, we had peaked out at about 1.8 million. Okay, 1.8 million, okay.
3: And that may be pretty accurate in terms of Mm -hmm. other people's estimates as well that I've seen. So this story is, um, and I'll have to uh, admit that I can't remember who did the research on this. Oh, Flashpoint, Flashpoint, I think it was Flashpoint. Um, they had done some research, and um, uh, they determined that there is a certain vendor, uh, Hangzhou Zhangmai Technologies, that uh, ships some flawed code that allows attackers to gain access to these devices. Um, and it's the same kind of problems we see with other devices, too. So they're not mm-hmm. the only people out there. Um, but they do have kind of a brand, and there's a lot of OEMs devices, I would like to call it, where if you have a security surveillance camera DVR, they supply the hardware and some of the underlying firmware. And um, this Zhang Mai uh, technologies do. And um, there's a lot of vendors out there who have their own security camera platforms that's kind of branded with their own brand. But mm-hmm. underneath the hood, it's really, you know, this this uh, Hangzhou mm-hmm. Zhang Mai technology. So these get
1: sold under a lot of different brand names, right. I think we had identified about a, you know, 10 or 12 perhaps. Probably, yeah. yeah. Uh,
3: a lot of them have that net surveillance um, as a, in the title page when you log into it. Uh, in any event, so he discovered, um, or whatever, a Flashpoint had discovered that um, uh, not only are they shipping these with default passwords on Telnet, which we know about, and they're probably not telling anybody, you know, people who are shipping these devices, not they're not the, usually telling the consumer really the manual, yeah. that, hey, Telnet is open on here. Because <laughs> most consumers mm-hmm. would go, well, I don't know what that even means. Mm-hmm. I just want to look at my web cameras. <laughs> but um, not only that, but the web interface uh, has a authentication bypass on it. So it's kind of just a nondescript login page, has some kind of background. Some vendors will change that background, put some kind of branded logo on there, but it usually has in the middle of the screen some kind of username, password, login page, uh, or prompting box there. Uh, in the upper left hand corner, usually the title is going to have login there or net surveillance, or in some cases they have net surveillance web app or something like that. And it's intentionally misspelled there because it actually is misspelled <laughs> on the pages. Um, and it'll usually redirect you to a slash login.htm. Uh, as the base that you're gonna log into. Mm -hmm. If you just change that to slash DVR.htm, which is part of the research that they presented here, it just takes you right into the web interface. Um, So it's very, you know, uh, there are a lot of these out there. So when you account for the fact that there's a lot of vendors who have kind of put themselves on top of this base insecure platform, um, they estimate, I think they did some analysis with Shodan and some of these other services. It's around 515,000 devices. Like we, we said, we, we know of at least 1.8 million that we see across the span of a day. So 515,000 is a pretty large piece mm-hmm. of that pie, mm-hmm. um, especially if people aren't changing the passwords and they're just dropping it onto their internet connection. Yep. As Well, is. If, I, if
1: I remember correctly, even if I, I think the telenet password wasn't even changeable. In some oh cases, uh, that it was might actually be programmed mindset. into the firmware and wasn't uh, wasn't actually changeable, yeah that could so be yeah, a, that would, one of the challenges too that that is a challenge <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so and uh, you know this uh, it, it, there have been a number of things done with these I think the most notable most recently is the denial of service attacks huge denial of service attacks one right. uh, against Krebs uh, broke a record Matt you were describing this uh, and the previous program, the uh, and then broke another record. Um, it was attacked against OVH. I think, uh, if I understand correctly, it was actually against some Minecraft servers. That's what those the, uh, attacks. the CEO
0: claimed. It was interesting. Right. He, I haven't actually seen myself mm-hmm. an independent validation of the volume that he claimed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if it is true, it is a record. Yeah, he
1: he had tweeted a table that showed some data and it was at least up on the order of uh, 990 gigabits per second just across against two IP addresses, but there were other attacks also taking place around the same time period, so others had made it bigger, and then if you take a look at, uh, I think some others had done some theorization, it was based on just that 150,000 sources that were conducting the attacks, just you could theorize that the attack could easily have been much bigger. That is, it doesn't take a whole lot of processing power when you get to spread it across 150,000 or 200,000 de- devices to uh, generate that amount of traffic. So there may have been some upstream bottlenecks that block some of that activity. So no, it certainly is. But on top of that, I guess there have been other uh, things we've seen. Uh, uh, Bitcoin mining, or at least Dogecoin mining, that right. had been done on these devices in the past, uh, there had been websites created just to kind of do a crowdsourcing rating of what's on the cameras. <laughs> oh, okay, right. And so, uh, you know, you could take a look at what was on the various cameras, you know, through a con- sort of an aggregation website and decide which ones you would rate as being more interesting. Can't imagine what would get. You know, higher ratings than others. Speculate, <laughs> yeah. And then the—it's um, probably not the uh, the the soft drinks aisle at the local store.
0: Brian, <laughs> I wonder <wanted> to <laughs> know when they restock.
1: <laughs> and then the—but uh, if you consider perhaps where these devices are being installed, it's going to be businesses, mostly small businesses. In these cases, independent businesses, right. perhaps of interest, but uh, perhaps in executives' homes. Um, that uh, might be a good target for uh, for a certain, you know, basically infiltration attacks into their local network, and um, so lots of you know potential concerns associated with these uh, these devices. It's not just the fact that it's a DVR or the fact that it's a device; that there are other you know concerns that come with this. So. Um, It's not clear how this is going to get straightened out in the long run. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion and talk Mm -hmm. around
3: it, um, whether the industry can do something about it, whether government needs to get involved. Mm -hmm. I don't really have a position. I think I would be better if the cybersecurity industry could somehow solve the problem. But it's not an easy problem to solve because there's no real method to do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even the vendors who have deployed these devices, there's no Mm -hmm. auto update process. There's no way to patch it unless you could notify all these users and in general Mm -hmm. these users are not going to be there's no way to notify them Mm -hmm. because they're buying it's a cheap device relatively they just deploy it they're not filling out their you know product registration cards and sending it back to the vendor usually Mm -hmm. so um
1: yeah well and and we talked about a case earlier where even trying to contact the vendor was fruitless that's true and i think you know, if
0: we told people uh, Hangzhou, Zhongmai Technologies cameras are the ones to worry about, I mean, yeah, ba- mapping that back to gonna know. which one they actually right. bought, yeah, they'll never know. Yeah.
3: You'd have to get all those OEM vendors that are on top yeah. of
1: that, really. And they'd have to contact their customers, probably, if, right. again, they had that list. Yeah. Right. To put a little more of a positive twist on this, there are a number of organizations that are putting together guidelines. And, you know, in some cases, different contexts, but some guidelines on what are the uh recommended security things to do in IoT devices. And uh this is certainly sort of a, a target of some of those guidelines in, in certain circumstances. There's a group that's specifically focused on auto industry. There's a there are groups that are focused on um, you know industrial control systems as well, but more generically, there's activity associated with this. Uh, Underwriters Laboratories is taking a look at this. I think the White House's administration is basically encouraging this so that they would be able to get a labeling on what I like to call uh, internet safety, so that devices could have a safety label uh, put on the devices in the store and uh, so that things, you know, people at least will have an opportunity to shop for devices that are considered safer than others. Now, the question that follows is is it going to require some sort of a regulatory regulatory enforcement on the safety of devices? Uh, but, you know, similar like we have, you know, for medical items and, right. you know, because it ultimately it does uh, translate to safety at some level. So I, I think of still like some how well on that topic.
3: You know, if you were to try to like yes, you could say, here's the list of things it needs to conform to, but unless you're actually checking the firmware for some hidden backdoor that they're not telling like, you about,
1: that's what the, you know, it
3: can get tricky. And we know that that's happening. But deliver backdoor
1: is another matter. That's uh that's certainly a, a difficult and challenge, I'll, you're right? I'll just put this out there. I mean, we can do this
0: all within the United States. We can do this all, we can get the framework set up. Mm-hmm. The internet's still the internet. If every other country in the world fails to do this, we still have the same problem and about on the same scale, I would say.
1: Yeah, that's sort of true. Um, There are other countries that are taking a look at this. I I heard that uh, China was looking at it, Europe is looking at it. So there are other, uh, I mean, everybody I think is, globally is recognizing the the issue here and uh, working to try to get it resolved one way or another, but I, I think we have a long road to hoe still. And um, it it doesn't fix the devices that are already out there, so there still need will need to be some effort around that. Yep. All right. So on a lighter note, perhaps we can uh, look at uh, a little bit of internet safety topics with our quiz from John Markley. We need a All little right, so jingle. These we these need are... a little jingle that brings you into the quiz. Yeah. We need. Well, I got, got wear my hat
2: again, so it's like I did last week. So we're 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 okay. Um, but yeah, I, I need a theme. Uh, I'll work on that. <laughs> My the uh, or my son, well, he's musically inclined. I am not. Um, so, so these are all the theme here is safety. It's Cybersecurity month, safety, all hand in hand. So, so here's here's kind of a tricky one. Start us off with uh, when buying online, look for a HTTPS in the URL, a B lock indicator, C the website actually has a seal of approval uh, on the site itself, or D all of the above. And you can choose more than one. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, it, it could be A, B, C, D, or A and B, or B and C, or, or whatnot.
1: Well, so clearly D is redundant.
2: <laughs> yeah, I guess. Quizmaster that's, that's, yeah. Cl- failed a little bit there. You're right. <laughs> all
1: right. We won't, we won't hold you against that one or hold that one against you. Um, I'm going to say, oh, quite frankly, I think all of those have uh, value attributes associated with them. I I presume when you say website seal of approval, that uh, I think VeriSign provides, and there may be other companies that do this as well. Basically, a a seal that can be put on websites to basically, I think it um, it, it has to do with a certification that they basically have done some testing against the website from a security standpoint, in addition to the locking thing. So uh, I would say all three of those provide value. I'd say
0: so too. Although I will admit, I've seen both the lock indicator and the website seal of approval been faked before. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the lock so. used to be very easy to fake in the uh, favorite, favorites icon, the fav icon of a site, um, and then you could put as many locks on the page as you want. And then the seal of approval, the the correct, the companies that do it right, that I've seen, they'll have the seal on the page. Mm-hmm. And if you're on the, the company that you're you're vetting and you click on that, it'll bring you to the, the seal vendor site, Right. and it'll pass the URL. And then that So that you co- can verify it. Exactly. Absolutely, But I would point. go with D, generally.
2: Okay.
3: I'm going with A and B, just to be the rogue. Oh, wow. I'm gonna say that website seal of approval is bunk. <laughs> I never trust it. <laughs> but if, it,
1: if you actually have the opportunity I've seen to so many. It.
3: I've seen so many like fake ones that I don't even
1: bother <laughs> looking for it because it's just usually, you know, bunk. Okay, but if you have the opportunity to go to the provider of that seal, right and verify that the site is yeah, I impacted. guess okay yeah you're gonna you're gonna concede
0: on <laughs> I'm that still on going that thing, with A and B on the, the other hand you've probably run across websites that have the seal and it is correct and yeah. you can still find at least one vulnerability on that well site. that's yeah. true too yeah. isn't
1: it a shame that security experts are debating about this topic <laughs> <laughs> all right So, I, I mean I think it's uh, it's testimony to the fact that none of this is easy it's not easy for for professionals so John what's your Verdict
2: here. I, I, I tell you what, it, it's it, this discussion was very good, but if you want to go strictly by what you're seeing here, think about think about the the C, which was the website has a seal of approval. Who puts that seal on there? The website administrator does that. Yeah. So if there's not like, you, and I think your your point was valid. If I could click on that and go to another site that I trusted, but John, I would give the answer. The best answer was yours, A and B. Yeah, yes. you know, the website seal uh, of approval is yeah. not always a hundred percent guaranteed.
1: Yeah, John's sticking his chest out. I but, but I think I, I, I really liked Matt's point. Is if you have the opportunity to actually have a third-party verification that the site is valid, it uh, it gives an extra piece of it. But you know, technically the HTTPS or the the security certificate should be doing that for you. So um, I'll go right. one further. I'll, I'll say you can have hacked sites with
0: an HTTPS in the URL.
1: Yeah. Well, this <laughs> is true too. Yeah. So throw shouldn't up be your hands and stop shopping online. <laughs> no, 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 I didn't
2: say that. <laughs> stop shopping yeah. online. Oh, don't say that. <laughs> yeah.
1: Security security helps, but there's no guarantee. That's a fact. There's
2: that. no question. Here, here's one maybe that's a little bit easier, maybe, or a little bit less debatable. <laughs> when, using, when using your cell phone, you notice it says 2G in the upper corner, typically the upper left corner. You should, A, hang up immediately, B, continue the conversation as normal, C, avoid discussions about personal information, or D, report it to your carrier. All right. And, there, and, there, is, and there is one best answer.
1: I, I have a couple of uh, sarcastic comments to oh, make Oh, good, here. you too. <laughs> so first of all, if you see 2G on your thing, well, look, like, I, I don't wanna muddle up it, so I'm gonna cover that one in a, in a moment here. But <laughs> uh, I, the one answer that I was looking for that's missing is discuss misinformation. Because if you think perhaps somebody is listening on you, you really want to give some some really good untruths. So okay. well, All right, so go ahead. I mean,
3: <laughs> I thought 2G was still digitally encrypted. I mean, it's digital? It is It's encrypted. But, I don't know that's that easy to, I'm not worried. I wouldn't call it easy. First of all, I don't have very exciting conversations. So it's, <laughs> when are you gonna be home? And will you stop by the
1: supermarket and get yeah. something
3: to eat for dinner? Yeah, so it's not that exciting. So I'm then go- my gonna answer know, is B.
1: you they're gonna know which security camera to look at to see you at that store.
3: Oh, uh, and, and
0: they can see me right here. <laughs> uh, I'm going with B. <laughs> all right. So my snarky con is, if you're using your cell phone and you've got it up to your face, which eye are you looking with, that you can see 2G <laughs> on your ear? <laughs> like,
1: no, That's I mean, have though. you done this?
0: <laughs> <Because I'm,
1: laughs> Don't you look to see who you're talking with, and you're then check to phone. see if you're on speakerphone. Uh, you're on speakerphone. Yeah. Oh, of course.
0: Of course. Yeah. So <laughs> I'd also, I would also ask, where in the world are you? Because I, I wouldn't this. be surprised if you still found some legitimate functioning 2G networks out there.
3: Yeah. Um, I was on one just
0: uh, this weekend. No, 2G, 2G. is still valid. Yeah, what did you do? Did you A, hang up immediately? Did I didn't
3: make any phone calls. Oh, okay. I just got annoyed because I couldn't get in. I was trying to like surf the internet, I couldn't get
1: anything. 2G is a valid uh, service level still. Yeah. And, and it's, it's a fallback in some circumstances as well. I think that's one of the challenges is that I understand it. The encryption is weaker, but it is still encrypted. Uh, and then but the concern is that under certain circumstances you would be able to actually break that encryption But it does take yeah, some deliberate yeah, effort come on. And, it, and you've got to capture it off the air and a number okay. of other things So that there I'm not they're, a high-value target to... so but I I'm gonna go with D Okay, but it doesn't have anything to do with security that is I think at this stage if you're getting only 2g service you really, that your carrier will want to know about that because they were going to want to improve your service. So I'm going to say report to your carrier and I'm going to give a little bit of a plug just to, for for that sake. Uh, AT&T has an app, I, it's not well marketed that I'm aware of, but it has an app called AT&T Mark the Spot. Yeah. So you can go download that for free. And uh, I like it because when I do have a problem with coverage or something, I'll report that I have a coverage thing and then they'll provide reports back on the improvements that are being made so it's uh it, i i find it to be uh to be helpful and the, the coverage has improved immensely over the last few years so i'm going to pick d this one i don't think we're going to get to the right answer here are we john <laughs> you
2: kind of did kind of didn't the key here is is that 2g is like we were saying is 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 breakable right Yep. And so you see things like false base stations, MZ captures, cap- yep. catchers. They're trying to drop you down to 2G because they can break that encryption and, and, and actually get your data. Mm-hmm. So, so, so that's the whole point there. Uh, you're right, Brian. You want to report it probably. But from a true security perspective, basically just have to realize that what you're conversing about could be captured. Mm-hmm. And, and, could be, and could be observed. So I, I would avoid discussions about personal information if you're aware that you're on a 2G network. Yeah.
1: Well, and actually, uh, you do make a good point. That is, if you are in an area where you expect to be good coverage and are dropped down to 2G, that, that is suspicious in behavior. I mean, it's a not typical. Especially, b-
2: especially like if you're attending twist. Black Hat or DEF CON or something whoa, of that nature. Now we're throwing you a twist.
1: put your it. phone on at DEF yeah. CON? Yeah. <laughs> First of all, have a burner phone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. All right, so we'll move on here. I don't. I, I think we were just going downhill on that one.
2: <laughs> yeah, th- th- and this one may go down farther. <laughs> it's the uh, safety at rest. So this is, you pick up a $5 USB flash drive, at the, and it's yours. At the lost and found of your local coffee house, what should you do? So A, consider all data potentially compromised. B, not insert into your computer. C, reformat before using again. Or D, crush it with a hammer and throw it away.
1: Um, And and there could be more than one right answer. I'm going to pick E, which is skip two cups of coffee and get yourself a whole new flash drive. (laughs) A nicer one. (laughs) Is it an F, nuke it from orbit? It's the only way
0: to be sure. Well, I'm going to go with A and D. Yeah. A and D. Well, but then also not insert into your computer, obviously. But then I wouldn't reformat it because that suggests you plug it into a machine.
1: Yeah. So yeah.
2: That's good. Th- th- this this one's a little tricky. I mean I, and I laugh when I created this question because I used to in a former job we had all these tape drives and we were try- tapes we were trying to figure out what to do with them, so we had races with them, so we'd smash them with a hammer and run the string, you know, mm-hmm. the, the tape reel down the down the hall. That was always fun. <laughs> But, but the answer, the, the best answer is is really all of these will work. I think it, it, it considers is what can you do to safely, like, for example, reformat it. If you have a, a machine that you trust or you don't care if it gets, you know, recompromised or whatever, you could probably reformat it there. But the key here is is that you do have to think about when you've left something that has no encryption natively on it, the data on it is probably gone and you probably really shouldn't use it again.
1: Mm-hmm. I think you're right. A, B, and D. Is what I would go with. I, I, I'm I'm leery about C, and it, but perhaps uh, John Hoover can convince me otherwise. But I think no. I said A in and in, D. Oh, you did say A and D. I'm sorry. Yeah.
3: However, yeah. what I do yeah. is I just put um, uh, a rat on all of my thumb drives. So whoever sticks it into their computer, now I immediately now you know who they are, yeah. who they are because they're calling back to what my C2. What yeah. to Mac, too. John? You're gonna have to
0: have <laughs> several rats on your well, thumb Well, that's drive.
3: true.
1: Yeah, I have to have cross-platform rat on there. All right. So I think this. Uh, <laughs> I think this fosters some good discussion. So thank you for bringing that to us, John. And that's our show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. And you can find at Threat Track on the ATT Tech Channel, YouTube, as well as on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Business. And uh, I'd like to thank you, John Markley, for joining us today. Great.
2: Thank you for having me. Thank
1: you, John Hogaboom. And uh, thank you, Matt Kaiser. I'm Brian Rexro. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe.
0: The views expressed on ATT Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of ATT or any other person or entity.